tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil, overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world, we invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. So, Dr. Koontz, uh, about an episode back, you picked up on my own attempt to use A Brief History of Power as my own personal little toy to pick your brain about how I can best lead a congregation to survive through the coming global fracturing, whatever that looks like, might be a collapse, um, particularly as I live in the uh, the late great state of, of Illinois. Um, and uh, you kind of liked that idea, like, well, let's get, let's put some meat on these bones. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about this from the perspective of what does this quote unquote blue state and it's, can we say, uh, aggressive hegemonic power grabbing, uh, what does it mean for a Christian uh, of, of any goodwill who is still living here? Um, the writing's on the wall in a lot of different ways. Uh, should we flee to, to the great promised land of Florida? Uh, do we need to, I mean, I golly, the weather would be nice, I'm sure, but... Um, <laughs> But is it is it really the only way for the faith to survive, right? Um, and I think the answer is no. It's why I'm here, but I'm still searching for you know pieces to this puzzle. And so here we go, a little a little day with Richard John Daly, right? Because one of the things we're going to look at in the next several episodes, which will each have their own major American city selected for reasons that you'll come to understand in that episode, leading into a longer, much longer discussion of American history. We're going to go back to the beginning and give you a framework for thinking about it somewhat similar to Quigley. But the reason we're starting with these specific cities that we'll be looking at, beginning with Chicago, is because the processes that you'll see ongoing in their own history are not absent from places that you now or will in the next five years think of as safe. I see the impulse in a lot of people in the church that they choose and the city they want to live in or the state they want to live in or whatever is that they, what they want to do is exit history. So they want to go to a place of absolute unshakable certainty. Okay. And the problem there is that as we talked about in the last episode, unshakable certainty is only available in God and in his revelation. It is not available currently in everyday life, like you're just going to be fine. Like you get out of college and you're going to get hired here and you're going to have a great income for the rest of your life and then retire with a fully funded pension. And even if any of that ever existed for anyone, it was kind of fake. And it's definitely highly unusual. That kind of certainty about life is not given to you. So people Wait, what but, they want but, but how do you sell insurance then 
I mean, insurance is a calculation of risk. I mean, there's a certain realism about insurance that I wish more people had. Like, I wish they looked at actuarial tables. Mm. Maybe not in order to buy various kinds of insurance products, but just to get a realistic sense of what could happen here. Yeah, not, not so much for peace of mind though. Is my my no. little jest there, right? Like, so no, no. Uh, trying to that's the sales pitch for the close now that you've got 200 grand and you know life insurance policy you know you're going to have better peace of mind jenny will be safe you know this now right and that that idolatry uh is so magnificently eating us alive right now uh across the world (laughs) um so this is wonderful escape from history you can't escape from history so that's why then studying history puts you in it a little bit right studying history gives you much greater access to realism, mm. both about yourself, but but about people generally. And so it, I, I think it simply, before it does anything else, it deflates several balloons that were going too high. And one of those is the idea that you will get to a place that has exited history. And what that means is that there will no longer be struggle. So this is the sort of historical, or as we talk about Chicago today, the political example of someone who believes that because he's a Christian, he's no longer sinning or whatever the version of that might be. That's sort of a personal version. There are authoritative versions of this where now that I'm in this church, I have all the right answers or this church has all the right answers, or this church is infallible, or this state will never go blue, or whatever. And the problem there is that processes of decay and destruction of various kinds are at work throughout the creation, not only in your own heart, but also in the great state of Florida. (laughs) So that doesn't mean that you get fatalistically pessimistic I find a lot of people go there real fast. I, that's definitely not, I don't, I don't grasp that on an emotional level. Pessimism doesn't come to me easily, but they get fatalistically pessimistic. My personal psychological error is probably optimism in that case, if we're going to talk about fatalism, but they get pessimistic. So they think like, well, I'm not going to do anything or I'm not going to move because it's just going to be bad there too. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's bad and it's good everywhere. That's the nature of life in this creation. The point of looking at the cities that we're looking at is because they are in their own way exemplary, meaning processes that are ongoing almost anywhere in modern day America have been there longer or bigger or more obviously or whatever adjective you might choose in a way that is helpful for understanding regardless of where you live or where you choose to live. So we pick Chicago because Chicago is such a great example. People have asked me, and I just had this conversation with some family over the Christmas break that we're visiting. They asked me kind of this civil war question, you know, is there going to be a civil war? And I I don't think that these family members are listeners. I'm not sure that they know how to access podcasts, which is- I thought they were asking for details about a battle somewhere in Pennsylvania. They were not. No, I could have provided that too, okay? No, as I get you Not as many people- that people should be more interested in the burning of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, but they're not, you know. 
<laughs> so no, they, they were not. It was not my dad visiting who would actually know what that I is. Want, I don't care about that. Yeah. No. So they're right. asking about the current potential about, for yeah. a, right. uh, a red blue battle or maybe a white it. black brown or who knows how they're trying to right. split it up. Yeah. So the answer that I get, that I gave was can, it, it, this is a, this is like the reality of life in Illinois. But it's the reality in almost any state. I mean, you have a microcosm of it even in Laramie, Wyoming, vis-a-vis the rest of Wyoming, right, is with very few exceptions. I mean, there are very few large cities that are that are red dominant right. in America. Jacksonville, Miami, El Paso. I don't have another one off the top of my head. Is that the, the divide in America is is not sectional or regional so much as it is urban versus to some degree suburban very much versus rural and the reason to talk about chicago is because chicago is very much a state it it, it is really sort of its own state to the degree that there are very frequently complaints about the fact that statewide officials never come to springfield which is the capital of Illinois. Yeah, right. Because they don't need to. Because not only are they from Chicago, there's nowhere else you really need to go to do anything in order to govern the state, really, practically, functionally. So we we pick Chicago and its longest running, certainly most famous mayor, Richard J. Daley, to talk about because the dynamics going on there are there in a nutshell, even in Alabama or Wyoming or Alaska, it's just that sometimes these processes are much less advanced because of other factors, because you don't have the kind of economic development or population increase at one time that Chicago and Illinois broadly did, right? So Chicago is used as an example, as the other cities in this series are going to be used as examples of processes that are there in a nutshell or there maybe just aspirationally, even if you live in, you know, whatever Maine or New Mexico states with relatively low population density, is that this process of dominance by an urban center of all facets of life, but especially for this week's purposes of political life, is nascent. It's there, you know, it, it could grow into something more in the way that it has grown into a very mature form in the case of Chicago and Illinois. So I'm writing down dominance of the city state. And, you know, that I, I think I got this from like grade school. So maybe I'm wrong, but I, I remember the geography talking about the state capitals, having to memorize all the state capitals and thinking like, um, that's weird. It's never the biggest city. That's so upside down. Why would they do that? And I must have asked that question or at least or or I came up with the idea. Well, I think it was so that that big city wouldn't run the state. That that was the goal. So that was the goal. We're going to we're going to have it be a small city that runs the state and the big city do its own thing. And what you have happen is that tactic was like useless in warfare. Basically, uh, it, it, it the, the city state is so strong as a category of historic human development uh, that uh, it is going to be de facto what the state is. Um, right. Now, and jumping to nation is a different thing a little bit, a mm, little bit, but yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, and, and it, it, exactly. And 
the idea behind our both federal frame of government and because of our federal frame of government, almost all our states, with the exception of Nebraska, which has a single chamber for the legislature, unicameral, is that what we're going to try to do is recognize that cities have power. So what that really means is that populations have power, right? Mm. So even if you have a monarchical form of government, once you have an actual city, your king is going to stop wandering around like he would have in, say, England prior to the ascendancy of London over all other population centers, right? He might still travel around the country in the same way that judges are still going to travel around in, that's why they're called circuits, because originally they would travel. That's why Abraham Lincoln traveled all over Illinois in order to follow those judges and follow those circuits. But ultimately, whether he's there most of the time or whether he's there all of the time, as you have with most modern capitals in both monarchies and republics and other forms in between and, and outside of those, is because cities do matter because preponderances of people matter. More is going on, more is happening, more is developing. You you really cannot ignore that. The word civilization, I think we've talked about this before, comes from the Latin word for city, civitas. It means fundamentally a, a grouping of human beings, a culture that has cities. That's what it means. And so just ignoring that, saying, well, we're not going to do that or we're not going to take any cognizance of that cannot be done. On the other hand, you want to recognize that the population is spread out. So that's why, for instance, we have the electoral college for our presidential elections, but it's also why we usually have a second chamber, usually called a Senate, that is going to be divided up by, say, counties or districts or something that will somehow be differently arranged and give different weight to geography than to population. Okay. That's trying to balance two things. One is most people are going to live in cities or some large proportion of people are going to live in cities. Let's say let's say it's 36%. Okay. In modern America, it's it's over 50 live in metro areas or urban areas. Let's say that most people don't live in cities or that most people do, you still want to give some weight to the fact that some people live in the middle of nowhere or some people live in small towns or something like that in order to keep the population with a sense that it matters no matter where you live in some way. Okay. And the the preponderance of that balance was always toward geography rather than population. I mean, you, you can see that population matters relatively little relatively, let's just say less in voting for a president than other things. Okay. So the electoral college does, does try to control for both population and geography. If that's the case though, the problem is that there are certain levels on which population really is all that matters. So if I am the governor of a state and I have control over its lower house and I have control over all the other statewide offices, it doesn't really matter that much that my state Senate is controlled by Republicans. So this is uh, this is just simply kind of a reality of life is that cities and towns, cities and rural areas have differing interests, really regardless of the level of development. So you can find the same tension in a third world country that has, let's say, three cities of any size, as you can in a highly developed country like the United States. So we're talking about a perennial difficulty here. Because it's perennial, 
one of the things that I think is a, a rather massive long-term political mistake is to completely cede the control of cities to people that you don't agree with. Just say that's theirs, which is effectively what the Republican Party has done in in almost every instance of a city of any size. Control is simply ceded entirely to people that don't agree with them, which would be sort of one thing if the debates were that were, were what they were throughout most of Richard J. Daly's life. So he's kind of early 20th to mid late 20th century. That's one thing, right? So it's like, well, in the cities, they just have higher tax rates. Okay. That, that would be like one thing. And I could be upset about that. If it's like in the cities, you can kill babies, but in the country, you can't kill babies. You see what the stakes have become. You also are looking at long-term just simply not mattering. So imagine that tomorrow, dear listener, you wake up and you get to be the head of the Illinois Republican Party. <laughs> okay. So you have a complete lock on every county that is gradually, slowly, sometimes more quickly, emptying of population. Okay. you Those are your folks. You got all 4,500 people in that county. They're going to vote for you. You have no control over anything else. None. And you can't because you're not even trying anywhere else. So the idea that, okay, we're going to have a civilization, right? But cities aren't going to matter. <laughs> All the good people are not going to live there. All the good people are going to flee as far away as they possibly can. They're going to share that meme where the two guys with the like Chad cartoon heads are saying, you worried much about what's going on down there in those cities? And he's like, no, it's like, that's really cool. But let me tell you, like my ancestors have lived in rural America for the entire time that we've been here, as far as I can find. And guess what? We never mattered. <laughs> I don't have a single, there's not a single famous person in my genealogy. That's not an accident, right? We lived in out of the way places. You get out of the way lives. That's totally fine. If that's your sole goal. It, but if you want to like, you know, maybe make sure that someday like babies are not being killed either in the city or in the country, you might want to do something else. So you might have to engage a city to some degree. I think writing them off altogether was and remains an enormous political mistake on the part of, in our context, the Republican Party. All right. So uh, chicken or egg? Yeah. And this is a question... Let me just kind of rephrase. It's, it's a listener question about what do we need to focus on first? So should we focus on sort of a, a personal and a religious reformation and then worry about political change? I, I don't think that you have to resolve this dilemma in favor of one or the other. So it's been a truism on the right, especially the traditionalist right in the United States, that Politics is downstream of culture. So if you change the culture, you'll change the politics. That That's true and that's false. Okay. So that's why if you want to go focus on Republican politics in Illinois, more power to you. If you don't think you can do that, but you want to focus on something else, more power to you. It's not that your religious convictions don't matter. It's that the political arena is not always a place where intense religious clarity matters. Because sometimes it might be that I, I need you to not necessarily agree with me on how you're running your family day to day. I need you to just concede that 
you know, unborn children exist. Okay. That's, that's like my only concern. So if, if I can do that, then I don't need to choose. I don't like in terms of a sequence. So I don't have to say like, let's spend the next 40 years fixing ourselves on a personal level, on a religious level, on a congregational level, on a denominational level. And then we'll worry about the rest of American life. We, the, I mean, sometimes we don't even have time to do that. I mean, groups that are much more by theological necessity, quietistic than even Lutherans are or need to be like the Amish didn't get a choice as to when and where they would have to fight over the right to educate their children in the way that they saw fit. So they they fought over that in Pennsylvania in the 30s, in the Midwest in the 60s. It goes to the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. They don't get a choice. You don't get a choice of when you engage public life. I think that a lot of people think of public life sort of like a like a 20-year-old like DC staffer who's there for the summer. And, you know, eventually he's going to take the world by storm, but he's just sort of waiting and he's like learning how to like wear his tie the right way and not get too sweaty in the summer in DC and like how to get invited to the right parties. But he's, he's like, he's got time for this. This is his career. That's not how life works, right? Life often intrudes on you and you have to figure out what you're supposed to do. Most of you probably weren't that interested in public goings on, except maybe in a spectator sort of way prior to 2020. Yeah. So that's fine, but just recognize that these you you don't really get a choice. So if you have somebody that shows a talent for these things, don't discourage him by by saying like, "Well, you should think about being a pastor, but <laughs> but since you're really good at, you know, handling people and raising money and stuff, I guess you could go into politics." I mean, but implicitly that doesn't really matter. No, all of these things could matter, and people have as we talked about last week, different talents. And that needs to be honored and recognized. And many things can serve both for the family and the church's good that are done in the state. So I don't want to like pick for everybody and say, you need to focus on this. Because just to go back to the terms of last week, I think the Lutheran bias here is going to be to pick the things that are closest to home and not to work on things that maybe we don't currently understand or are familiar with. So we'll pick the family in the church and we'll just leave the state to other people to determine for us. For reasons that we explained last week, I think that's dumb. Generally, what most Americans will do, as most Americans are probably Arminian, is that they'll pick the public life stuff and not focus on anything else. And then everything else will corrode in its own way. And this is how you get, for instance, a Republican party that now has a very large homosexual constituency and is sort of afraid to vote against it, even in the Senate, even from secure, very red states, because the other elements of life, the cultural elements, the ideological elements, the religious elements, the familial elements have not been taken care of. So the political stuff may or may not be working you know, functioning, but what it's defending or fighting for changes radically because the other parts of life have been neglected. All of them need to be cultivated at the same time. This is why we said last week, activity is necessary, right? You're plowing, <laughs> okay? You're plowing. You're not just like sitting on your hands when you feel like it. So I think um, the next bullet point kind of nails this. Uh, it, it starts with the neighborhood, it really does. The biblical use of the word neighbor is not just kind of random. <laughs> uh, it is essential to understanding how humans engage on every level. 
and uh, to then have a neighborhood politically working together that knows that it's doing that when other neighborhoods aren't doing that. Well, that's, that's how you take over a city, right? Um, that, I think that's where this is going, Bridgeport. Yeah, because Richard J. Daly, who was longstanding mayor of Chicago, comes out of an Irish neighborhood, an Irish Catholic neighborhood, obviously. I mean, it's sort of redundant. Irish is Catholic. Catholic is, for political purposes in America, pretty much always Irish. Those are the bishops. Those are the politicos, by and large. He comes out of this Irish Catholic neighborhood called Bridgeport. And the structure here is the structure of machine politics really anywhere in the United States. This is independent of party affiliation, actually. It's just that Republican machines are relatively fewer because Republicans did not devote themselves to capturing immigrant votes after the Civil War the way that the Democratic Party did outside of the South. So the Democratic Party is going to be structured around a coalition of ethnic interests. It's now today a coalition of ethnic and sexual and other kind of interest groups, identified parties and identities, but it's always been that way. Okay. Very, very different groups of very different interests are, are put together. Machine politics works in pretty much the same way. If the listener is really interested, there is a little book called Plunkett of Tammany Hall. And it's a recording of an Irishman working for the old Democratic Party machine in Manhattan, which was called Tammany Hall colloquially. And he explains how he operates. This is from the late 19th century. This is the world Daly grows up in too. This is the Republican Party in Philadelphia. It's how the machine works. So what you do is you identify people's interests and the party makes it their job to help those people. Okay. Now, in return for that help, so that involves <laughs> your like gas Fat bill. Tony, Fat Tony is involved in this. It, it is. Like. <laughs> it is. I mean, um, in return, it, it and sometimes extortion is involved and bribes are involved. But in return for your help, I mean, I, I try to put this in the best possible light so that you can understand why people would do this. In return for your help, no one's pretending that political parties exist for abstract ideological reasons. In return for your help on, you know, your gas bill got lowered. You got a place to live when you came to America. Your kid got into the best Jesuit prep school because, you know, you know, Bob Mulcahy put in a good word for you with Father Hayes, whatever. In return for that, you are loyal to the party. And so that is, for most people, simply your vote on election day. For some people, for people like Richard Daly, and we keep saying the J because then his son would be mayor of Chicago and that's Richard M. In return for some people, their loyalty is first going to be that they're going to be they're going to be pollsters. They're going to get the vote out. They're going to maybe carry out some of these favors in the name of this or that club. And the clubs in local neighborhoods like Bridgeport would have something like an athletic component sometimes, you know, so there's a baseball team and the, but the baseball team all works in that ward of the city to get votes out for Democrats in November, whatever the case might be, right? You prove yourself on that level. Well, now you're working at a at a larger level and now you're working at a city level and now you're working at a state level and now you're working at a national level, but it's very organized all the way down. And what the machine is organized for. So what is what do we mean by machine politics? We mean that votes are reliably produced. So this is 
this is, you know, joked about like even the dead people vote in Chicago, blah, 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 or everyone in Detroit votes three times. Yeah, that those those things happen and whatever. How many mules was it? Do you remember? <laughs> two thousand. Is that okay, right? two thousand. That that's always that's always happened. That has always happened. Okay, but that's not the heart and soul of a machine. Where machines do still exist, and I'm going to contend that they are in decline for reasons we'll make clear. Machines exist to produce votes from living voters. The other things that people try and sometimes get away with and sometimes don't, that's by the by. But the purpose of the machine is to produce votes reliably. It's it's a really a rational reaction to the existence of a democracy. There are other kinds of, let's say, ways of politically operating in non-electoral polities. So monarchies and aristocracies and stuff like that, those will often work through arrangement of marriages and familial relationships. But you're going to get the same. I mean, people are going to try to figure out, okay, how do I work this system the best way? And the way that's been identified in democracies is machine politics. Richard J. Daly comes up through the machine. And so this is a sort of apprenticeship system so that by the time you get to, he goes to law school, he's a young lawyer. This is why lawyers often matter so much in American politics because they understand how these electoral and financial realities are occurring. He has served a lot. He's done a lot by the time he's in his mid-20s. So you also are kind of schooling people in how the world operates, how political power operates. And so then they have an understanding. I mean, by the time they're 25 years old, they're not sitting there going, well, why isn't the government do what I'm like? Why don't they do what I want? They actually understand why the government would or wouldn't do what they want because they understand how things are actually working. So it's really sad that the major takeaway that I take from this is is not all the amazing notes. It's the fact that, that uh, his son was also mayor and <laughs> that the inheritance of kings, uh, it, it's right in front of your face and tell me to look for it. Like, like, yeah, it's no that's accident. Right. That's no accident. Yeah. He just just happened to decide. He my son just decided he wanted to be mayor too. So good, good on him. He did well. No, 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 no. This is orchestrated, right? Um, and it's it's not orchestrated in in some sense of like it's pretend. It's it's planned. It's intentional. You're yeah. you're, you're climbing a ladder, and that ladder is into an elite realm. Uh, and uh, to see that again, it, just with the American veneer. And then under which, you know, the real focus of your of your point is that machine politics is voter harvesting. It is whipping the constituency. It is going to use honey and vinegar, uh, but it ultimately isn't stealing the election. And this is what has enabled many epicenters to be as controlled as they are. Right. Uh, and, and potentially in, up to including the White House now at this point, because they got this down to such a science. So learning about yeah. it on the ground, right? Like this is where That's it right. was was new. Yeah. And Chicago is, even before Richard J. Daly's life, it, it is a place where machine politics is especially necessary because of the wide variety of people you have. So the reason that machines often are non-existent or don't, don't function all that well and don't really need to in a rural area or even a suburban area is because of relative homogeneity. And homogeneity along 
you could, let's say different, you know, planes of analysis. So you could say racial, you could say class, you could say ethnic, you could say religious, all different kinds. But let's say that almost everybody in rural Maine is either going to be a French Catholic, in which case he'll probably vote Democratic, or he's some version of a Yankee, more or less irreligious, but reliably Republican. I don't really need a machine. If I, if I'm just, if I'm the, you know, let's say precinct captain of what is essentially an entire county in rural Maine, it doesn't take that much management to get votes out in the direction that I need them. Okay. You need to manage votes where you have lots of people and where those people are not reliable or understandable necessarily. So then you have people of their own kind. So, okay, here's a, this is a Lithuanian neighborhood. Richard J. Daly isn't going to go manage the Lithuanians himself. He's Irish. He's going to find a Lithuanian who manages, who, who manages the Lithuanians, right? That's the point. And so machine politics really is a rational reaction to the enormity and diversity of certainly after the Civil War, most American cities, right? That's, that's why. Okay. And so you get, you, I mean, you get political organization in, everywhere in America, but the level of organization, the intensity, the year round nature of the work is going to be greater and greater and greater, the more urbanized something is. So there are rural democratic organizations in the, in the South. Those places are pretty much all Republican now, but there used to be, and they were organized around courthouses, but those guys didn't have to be professional politicos. Part of the reason that you get political dynasties, especially in democratic families like the Brown family in California that we'll talk about in this series, but also in the dailies of Chicago, also in the Kennedys of Massachusetts and New York, the reason that you get succession is because this is full-time work. So it's it's a family business. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that sure. not everybody goes into, but lots of people go into. So if the guy has five kids, maybe three end up in political office of some kind because it really it really is a full-time job just managing these machines, let alone being in power. And yeah. you will often find that in the case of certain machines, the guy's so busy with the machine, he never actually goes to power. So the man that that really put Harry Truman in the White House held a single minor political office in Kansas City for a couple of years. I mean, he he didn't need to because the management of machines and the production of votes, the getting out of votes is vastly more important than anything else. That's a little bit, you use the word harvesting. I yeah. want to distinguish here. I think we've done, we've only done this on the discord maybe between, between vote getting and ballot harvesting, because I think the game has changed a little bit. And this has to do with the decline of machines in the present day is that if the older game was getting out votes, so yeah, you've got you've got illegitimate voters. You've got you got you know immigrants who shouldn't be voting. You've got dead people who shouldn't be voting. Whatever, and those shenanigans have always gone on. The game has changed a little bit, okay. And so you will almost always find that because the Democratic Party generally is better at this than the Republican Party, that polities that are very democratic, like. San Francisco or Chicago or whatever will be 
much more decidedly Democratic in the final vote count than somewhere that's very Republican, let's say a, a rural county in South Dakota, will actually have had by percentage more Democratic votes than you know whatever precinct or the entirety of Cook County, Illinois had for the Republican in, in a given national election. And that has to do with existence of machines and their efficiency. The game changes, especially since the introduction gradually, but at a much greater rate since 2020, of ballots and people talking about ballots. So it's not just now it's not a paper that you only get if you show up to vote and then you mark the ballot and hand it in, right? That's that's the older game of vote getting, which is still being played. Ballot harvesting is different because now there are just ballots floating around. So in the, where I live in Colorado, all ballots are mail-in ballots. I mean, you could show up somewhere, but that would be like weird. And it's not even necessary because if you're a registered voter, you get a ballot in the mail. So in that case, mm. they're not really playing the same game anymore. No. You don't need to drive bodies to a poll or get bodies to a poll. You need to produce ballots. So you see it's a, it's a very different game in production of papers than it is. I mean, this is the difference between making the fake ID and sneaking into the club with a fake ID. The production of the fake ID is actually kind of easy in its way, right? <laughs> but now you have to fool an actual human and, and get your body there, and right? So the game has changed, and in a way it's gotten – for the people that are interested in this, much easier. And I, I think I've mentioned this before, is that the difference between certain states that I, I don't actually think are particularly conservative, like deeply conservative for any specific reason, like Florida, and states that have a lot of, let's say, conservative voters in various ways, uh, like Illinois, is that certain Republican parties have actually learned to play the game. Like they, they have become modern machines. Right. And that's what DeSantis the Florida, is, right? I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. The Florida GOP not only is much more aggressive, it also plays like the mail-in ballot game way better than the Pennsylvania GOP or the Illinois GOP where, you know, I mean, in Pennsylvania, it's, there's nothing like Chicago exactly. Philadelphia is not that as big proportionally as Chicago is relative to Illinois, but the outcomes are have are recently very much the same as in Illinois. And that's because there's a game going on that people like daily understood how to play. And that DeSantis is playing, for example, that most people will not admit exists or or they they're just not trying that hard. I mean, I mean, some I I go back and forth on this. Sometimes I think. They're just being dumb, you know, like somebody is sitting in Decatur, Illinois, and just doesn't understand what he could do to play hardball against the dominance of Chicago over his entire state. And sometimes I think that they're, you know, they're taking a fall in the fight <laughs> because for one's own personal prosperity, you can keep getting reelected. You can be the like token Republican from rural California or rural Illinois and keep getting elected, you know, paging Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> you can keep getting elected and you're going to be fine and your life is well taken care of. So it's not really in your self-interest to append the political dynamics of your state. 
So uh, JFK was yeah. in the news recently, and that's not what we're going to talk about. But maybe you can you, maybe you can work it in uh, the unsealing of the documents. But you want to focus more on his win in Illinois uh, in Illinois as a win for the presidency. Yeah, this is something that I find many fewer people know about than know about the assassination of JFK. Have a theory, you know, read the documents that were recently released where it was like. Uh, CIA probably killed JFK, LOL. <laughs> Hope uh, you guys weren't paying attention. Yeah. Um, no, that's that, that, I mean, really, that is what it said, right? And, I and know. like, and everyone's like, oh, oh, well, I guess right. I got to watch something else right now, you know? Yeah. Like, as opposed to, oh, wait, the, the, the three letter government organization that topples nations for a living was toppling our nation in 1960. What the hell are they doing right now? Right. Well, yeah, and I, I don't I don't want to well actually this. There are other interested parties with which the CIA is also involved that also have people either on the ground or suspiciously involved with Jack Ruby, Lee Harvey Oswald, especially through New Orleans. The two ones namely involved as sort of interest groups are Mossad, which is like the CIA of Israel. It's their intelligence agency huh. uh, who are famous for doing assassinations. I mean, the the history of Mossad that was released just a couple of years ago is called Rise and Kill First. <laughs> so That's a biblical so, reference there. Yeah, big, it is big a biblical reference. With and that, pigs in it. And that's where they got it, you know, wow. because a lot of the kind of founding generation of Israel, as well as, of course, of Mossad, are these sort of secular Jews and they use the Bible as sort of like a military handbook. I mean, that, that's not an exaggeration. So Rise and Kill First is the book to read on that. So their fingerprints are on many of these things, especially on some of the operations involving Jack Ruby and New Orleans. Also coming through New Orleans and out of New Orleans and very interested in JFK are anti, anti-Castro anti Cubans of various kinds. And so what I, all that I'm saying is that sole attribution to the CIA is a mistake that sometimes the right, but even the left does, especially if the CIA was intervening in the case of this or that, you know, third world country, they'll say, oh, the CIA did this. So they're very big on the CIA killed Salvador Allende, the elected, you know, socialist president of Chile and installed Pinochet. So the CIA works with plenty of other people is what I'm saying. And so attribution just to the CIA, I think is is just too easy. It's also obviously in the self-interest of Lyndon Bain Johnson. I mean, yeah, okay. Yeah. To, is it the self-interest of everyone who's in the CIA right now? Is it in the self-interest of everyone who's in the FBI right now? Yeah, yeah. Is it the self-interest of, of the NSA right now, right? Yeah, like, like, right, exactly. So forget that it. Like the CIA is, is uh, Cthulhu, Right. Like, no, no, no. It's just a tentacle here. And there's like lots of tentacles and they're the U.S. government. <laughs> right. right. And right. and the whole Kennedy scenario shows you how long it's been like this. You know, Captain America didn't have uh, Hydra take over shield in 2020. Captain America had Hydra take over shield right after World War Two while he was asleep in the ice. Sorry, sorry for the reference. I hate movie references these days. I'd rather have a biblical one. But but it's exactly where we are. Uh, they've prophesied it to us with their own pagan dreams. Yeah. And uh, so uh, to me, this is this is uh, it's, it's 
It's powerfully insightful. Those who didn't catch the news about this happening, right, about the, the release of the documents, think of what else they're missing. I mean, they're just, they're just not getting anything, right? They're just in the noise. And uh, that is part of a consumptive lifestyle We've talked. You talked about anxiety last time a little bit. It is. It is a distracted lifestyle um, that that we could, for over a century, not know what our government's doing and think, ah, it's fine. Like as Christians, right. as Christians, really, we're. I mean, wow, wow. Color in Sunday school documents and pass it on. You know, get past it. Right. So here's my yeah, rant. and it, yeah, and remember, you referenced Cthulhu. Remember that when. H.P. Lovecraft invents Cthulhu among various, in at best indifferent, at worst malevolent forces controlling human destiny. He invents them as a sort of evil pantheon. That you don't you don't need a single agent to accomplish evils. And so saying that you know okay well, that that's the naivete of saying well I'm going to move from Illinois to Texas and then you know, my problems are going to go away is that you don't understand that evil always operates along many axes. Right. And the the way in which Illinois has become, for instance, an abortion haven for the Midwest is not along a single axis that involves control of votes. Now, there is a very consequential control of votes, which may or may not have been completely illegitimate. I, I, I don't, because these things are sort of hidden in unwritten darkness, I'm just going to explain what happened rather than tell you this is precisely how it happened. What happened is that Illinois is still very much a toss-up state in presidential elections, really down to the early 1990s. 1992 is a decisive turning point for Illinois, California, different places. So in 1960, which is Kennedy v. Nixon, Illinois is the last toss-up state whose votes come in and in a way now suspiciously familiar to us in many states, Kennedy wins by a slim margin guaranteed solely by votes from Chicago. <laughs> now, those could have been that could have been organic vote production, meaning somebody down in Carbondale didn't turn out enough people, so they were overwhelmed by the demographic weight of real people in Chicago. Possible. Not maybe the only explanation, but possible. But basically, Kennedy is only president and only gets assassinated because of the political power of the Democratic machine of Chicago. Without the vote getting production, however you want to look at this, whatever methods were used or considered, without that, Kennedy is not president in 1960 because he simply runs too close and is too unknown. And, you know... Florida goes for Nixon. California, of course, goes for Nixon. California is reliably Republican at that point still. And so Illinois is really what makes John Kennedy the guy who would be the target of anyone's bullet in Dallas three years later. All right. So give me from point five to point six in your outline there because I'm not seeing the connection. The connection is that I think a lot of people rest in the idea that they have figured out that you know, whatever kind of campaign Richard Nixon ran, he's going to be foiled by Richard J. Daly's power in Chicago. Or whatever I do, everything is going to be bad. This is the fatalistic pessimism I was mentioning earlier. 
which is a, simply a reflex I see in many, many, many people. They get dispirited by knowledge. And so they stop with knowledge. The things that we're talking about today in terms of the last episode would all fit into the realm of things in which human action is necessary. So if you can imagine this as an alternate scenario, it's only an alternative for Irish Catholics. It's not an alternative scenario for, you know, German and Norwegian Lutherans and whatever, you know, many of our listeners. Irish Catholics, really the only advantage they have when they come to the United States of America is that they generally speak English. That's a good, that's a big advantage, but it's all they have. They're not wealthier or more important or more favored than anybody else. Okay. And some move to rural areas, um, especially in the Midwest, you get rural Irish, but but most are going to move to cities all over the United States. And next week, when we talk about San Francisco, we'll talk specifically about both another Irish family, but also about why San Francisco was a place where they especially flourished. But they moved to like Boston. I mean, Boston is like by its own history and the ethnic requirements of being a Yankee Protestant hates Irish Catholics sort of on two levels. <laughs> there's there's an ethnic kind of Anglo v. Irish antagonism. There's also a religious Protestant v. Catholic antagonism. Okay. So what you can do if you're in an adverse situation is you can figure out all the reasons that you're in the adverse situation and then lament them and complain about them and and get depressed by them and especially get numbed into inactivity by them. That's actually not the response of most Irish in most American cities. Instead, they figure out, right? So we're talking about American politics. We're not just talking about American Catholicism, where that English speaking advantage is huge and the Irish are going to be really disproportionately influential in American Catholic life. We're talking about outside the bounds of their church. We're talking about in the public sphere, things that affect them, is it okay for them to have the, you know their saloon open on Sundays because this is a Yankee town, so nothing's supposed to be open on Sundays, but they have different convictions. How do they make sure that they can do what they want and live in the ways that they want? They could have just said, you know, well, you know, nobody likes us here. You know, maybe we'll find somewhere else that everyone will like us magically. Instead, what they do is that they generally will organize and on an embryonic level for like Richard J. Daly's grandparents, this would have been sort of a club that was essentially just Irish Catholics, but will represent their interests to their, their ward healer, to their alderman, to their, you know, maybe to their mayor, maybe. But within a generation or so, they have either founded their own Catholic law school or gone to law school or whatever and gotten people into positions where now, if I go talk to the alderman, well, he's an Irishman too. Or I go talk to the mayor and for the next 30 some years, he's an Irish Catholic too. Richard J. Daly went to mass every day, actually, and uh, never moved out of Bridgeport. So the trick here is not to say, here are all these things that are going against me. It's helpful to know those things. I mean, I think being naive is not good. But if you stop there, I mean, you're never going to achieve anything and everything will be adverse even when it doesn't need to be because you sort of refused, you had an opportunity, let's say to be Joseph and you refused it. 
because it was too hard or complex or weird or it seemed the world seemed weird or foreign or you didn't know how to operate. And that refusal is really not going to get you anything and it may take away many things. And that's that refusal that in the case of the Republican Party, I talked about vis-a-vis all cities, but it's a refusal that means it's it's the reason that your options in Chicago, which had plenty of Lutherans of all kinds, your options usually weren't like, well, here's a Lutheran with his idea of things and here's a Catholic. It's like, here's two different Irish Catholics. <laughs> or at, at one time, it was more, certainly when Daly was younger, it would have been the Republicans were sort of represented Yankees who are the major figure in early Chicago history, major ethnic group as they are throughout the, the North all the way across the country. Here's a Yankee Republican and here's an Irish Catholic who's a Democrat. So what you ensure by doing nothing and organizing nothing and aspiring to nothing is that you get represented, heard, understood, nowhere. And that that is that is often the case. So the connection there between, you know, delivery of Illinois for favored, actually Irish Catholic, uh, first one to win. Irish Catholic Democratic presidential candidate in 1960 and complaining and, you know, all this kind of thing is that I find that a lot of people just go straight to the complaining and they never get to the step that would involve positive action for things that they actually believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to call it cynicism in the classical sense, but uh, sort of a spirit of... uh, when I'm Pope, it'll be fine. So make me Pope. Otherwise I'm going to sit here and figure out what's wrong with you. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and it's a malaise, right? It's a despair. Uh, it's a retreat. Uh, it is in that way, you know, it, you said being active, you want to engage. It's, it's a failure to engage. And I think in some part it's driven by fear. It's by the belief that engaging is going to bring pressure social pressure, financial pressure, um, uh, psychological pressure, uh, things that are effectively spiritual battles that without a, a firm identity, it's difficult to fight those. You know, right. if, if you're getting pushed about by the wind quite a bit, you mentioned public life finds you, you know, you go step mm-hmm. your foot into it and it will find you hard. Right. Yep. And so, uh, you know, that, that takes a certain kind of bravery, uh, which is, is not kind of the feeling of strength, but just the refusal to be apathetic again, the refusal to, to only point out why it's, why it's wrong, but instead to decide I'm going to go do what's good where I see it. The, right. the trick, I think, then is like how do, uh, say, young men today, but there's some older men and some wise women listening to us as well, uh, how do young men learn to both see and then prioritize those good engagements? Uh, what tool set, what questions do they ask so that, and, and you know, show my hand here a little bit, yeah. how do they turn off the inputs so they have the time to think enough to come up with an idea of what they should actually do and then follow through on it. It requires some of the stillness that we talked about last week regarding the word of God generally. But I would also say that it requires a stillness that gives you time and space to reflect on your life and also that you would either have or pray to have good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like 
I think particularly friendship is important here, which in terms of men is expressed as brotherhood, that you need people who can and will be honest with you as you also need the wisdom to be honest with yourself. So this is not the this is not the six-year-old that says that he wants to be an astronaut because he's just sort of interested or thinks it's cool. This is your understanding that if you seek this kind of training, that you will be eligible, able, set yourself up for this kind of a life, which would be this kind of a service to your neighbor. So it's also the understanding, which I think young men rarely have because they often believe that they are bulletproof or immortal, that time is more limited and precious than you think. So don't try to prepare yourself for everything. I did not prepare myself to be an HVAC technician. I mean, it doesn't have to be too late, but if I want to mourn it, it's probably is too late. <laughs> and that's fine. The light, the things that I did prepare for did work out well. No, they weren't always the things that I thought I was preparing for, right? So I originally studied rhetoric in order to be, you know, God forgive me, a corporate lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent I spent one day visiting UPenn Law School and then, you know, the Lord opened my eyes. So Hallelujah. I got back on the train. I got back on the train not wanting to be Pre a corporate preach lawyer. Preach it, so. brother. Preach it. <laughs> so that was that was a that was a good day spent, right? And I got I got some good books, but not not everything is going to be what you thought it was going to be, but it will follow in some sort of general track. And we need HVAC technicians, but this this is something where you know let's just let's just take the Irish Catholics as an example again. They don't set themselves up just as a good servant class for American life, which is usually how and why immigrants are imported. I mean, immigrant immigration policy doesn't change in America because America is a nation of immigrants. That's never how the people who are already here think about themselves. Look at the divergences in various Hispanic groups on immigration policy. Okay, When people feel that they are already here, they don't want to give everything they have to new people. It's not an out it's not a piece of altruism. Immigrants are brought to countries to provide classes of service and employment and labor for various other purposes. Bond servitude. Yeah. Everybody's everybody was brought here if you were brought here for that purpose, okay, at one time or another. Now you you can remain there. That's the that's the horrible possibility that Walther imagines when he thinks of um, maybe the Lutherans are going to remain Gibeonites, that is perpetual slaves to the Israelites, hewers of wood and drawers of water forever. So you're going to come and you're going to be a landscaper and your great grandson's going to be a landscaper too, because that's all you're ever going to be allowed to do. The Irish don't do that. So the, there's a whole inner Irish discussion about working class Irish and lace curtain Irish. Lace curtain Irish are the ones who are financially and professionally successful. Now, you have your tensions within your own group. Great, fine, whatever. That always is going to exist. The point is that the Irish only attain representation by the mayor of Chicago or the president of the United States because they let certain people be lace curtain. In order to succeed politically, specifically, 
you need somebody who's allowed to be lace curtain. Now he doesn't have to have grown up that way. That's fine. You can have mobility. And if your dad was a mayor and you want to be the HVAC technician, go, go for it. It doesn't, it doesn't actually matter that much, but you, you can't, you cannot succeed in any political way. And the stakes we see now are pretty high there. So we're not just talking about, well, there's some guy that I don't even respect who's lazy and just talks out of both sides of his mouth and he's a politician and I don't want my son to be that. We're saying like death of children. We're saying like perversion everywhere. We're saying, you know, you're going to pay climate reparations. The stakes are high for not participating in that and having no representation there is that you need somebody who's going to be there unless you just want to suffer it all. And you think that's more, I don't know, Christian than using the talents that some of you do have. Right. So I think that that passivity is very easy because it's lazy because it takes work to go into worlds that don't understand you and that you don't understand and to find some kind of success there. And that, that is precisely what people like Richard J. Daly think what you will of what he thought or who he was actually did achieve within a political system they didn't set up, but in which they were successful. There is wisdom in the seasons of affliction. Even long summers come to an end. That one's me. Here's one from Proverbs. Uh, Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.
North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.